Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And before we get started today, I just wanted to take a moment to thank our friends at City AM for their continued support of Diversity Podcast, publishing and promoting both our episodes and our supporting blog series so their readers can stay on top of the very latest DNI debate. You may want to check out City AM's own podcast called The City View for all the latest news and opinion for the city because we at Diversity Podcast are huge fans. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Daniel Conway and Jack Guest. Dr Daniel Conway is a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at the University of Westminster and his research specialises in feminist approaches to international relations, queer theory and the politics of LGBTQ rights and activism. Now his research, The Global Politics of Pride, LGBTQ Activism, Assimilation and Resistance, was basically conducted around the world in countries including South Africa, India, China, Taiwan, the Philippines, the US and Cuba. It's not surprising that he is widely published and a very respected commentator. We're delighted he's here today. Daniel, wonderful you could join us. Thanks for joining. Hi, Julia. Great to be here. And joining Daniel today, I'm also delighted because we're joined by Jack Guest, who is the Diversity and Inclusion Lead at the Global Wealth and Personal Banking Practice at HSBC. There, he thinks about building true merit-based environments in which all employees can contribute and succeed, but also thinking about this through a customer lens, thinking about customer products, customer services, and customer relationships as well. He is a founding member of the Asia Pacific's LGBT network Pride, and has personally driven the inclusion agenda both internally and externally. We're delighted he's here. Jack, great to have you on the show. Thrilled to be here, Julia. So where we begin every episode is to ask you both what you're focused on. What are you up to right now? Daniel, let me come to you first of all. What are you particularly focused on? Well, I was really struck that most of the research on Pride has been done in Western contexts. And in recent years, there have been growing criticisms of Pride by queer activists. So I was really interested to see how Pride occurs in other global contexts. And as you mentioned, I went to lots of different places, including China, South Africa, and also um, New York. I interviewed Pride organizers, LGBTQ plus activists, undertook ethnographic research at Pride parades, and also interviewed corporate diversity and inclusion professionals. And I'm particularly interested in how Pride events occur across the world, the similarities and differences and points of controversy. And I've also been interested in the role of the business community in Pride. And this was a consistent theme in my research, and it's something I'm writing about at the moment. Well, I'm looking forward to, to delving into to lots of that because we have listeners in 22 plus, I think it is, countries around the world. So the international dynamics that you're going to and, and perspectives you're going to offer today are going to be very resonant with the audience who are all thinking about very similar, you know, what is a corporate relationship? Fantastic. Wonderful. I can't wait to get into it. Uh, Jack, let me ask you the same question. You know, what are you focused on right now? Well, for us, it's consistency. I think that there's been a lot of great progress in the corporate space around LGBT inclusion, whether having really successful pride chapters, obviously in the UK and in Asia, and the introduction of a lot of insurance propositions and customer propositions that are a lot more inclusive. But we must focus harder on making sure that this isn't 
you know, an equal experience for customers in as many countries as possible where we operate. And so it's picking up on all the great things that have been done in certain markets and applying that consistency to wherever we can. And this is fascinating because the question of best practice comes up a lot, you know, in terms of corporate structures, corporate policies, corporate behaviours. But of course, the international dynamics are very, very specific. And what is the role of a corporate in driving change in environments that are perhaps not particularly welcoming or indeed appreciative of the value of LGBT employees? So fascinating. Well, I can't wait to get into this as well. So so let's first of all, just for the benefit of all the audience as well, think about the history of Pride, if we may. Doctor, I'm going to come to you first of all, if you would. I just wonder if you could just give us a bit of background information about the history of Pride, its original purpose, and then we can take the discussion from there. Sure. So the first Pride March was held in 1970 in New York to commemorate the Stonewall riots that had occurred on June the 28th of the previous year. As I'm sure many of your listeners know, the Stonewall riots occurred outside the Stonewall Inn, protesting against homophobic harassment by the police. And there had been some gay and lesbian organizing prior to the Stonewall riots, but what characterized these protests in the 1950s and 60s was a desire to be seen as respectable, normal, and non-threatening to broader American society. And the limited protests that did take place had, for example, strict dress codes. So people were told to wear a suit and tie and women were told to wear a dress. And Pride was completely different to this, much more bold, defiant, colorful, using humor, street theater with people displaying their bodies, kissing, making sexual references, and being very visible. And participants really being at the center of Pride. And early prides in Los Angeles and San Francisco also had floats. Then in 1978, Gilbert Baker, who'd been in the anti-Vietnam peace movement and was active in the San Francisco gay drag activist group, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, he designed the rainbow flag as an LGBT symbol. And this was, of course, adopted by pride parades internationally up to today. So very early on, Pride assumed the model that we're familiar with, a parade, a focus on being proud and open about being LGBT, being visible, building community, also having a party, using the rainbow flag and seeking to challenge and change homophobic social and cultural attitudes towards the LGBT community. And Pride is regularly seen as a rite of passage, as a gay Christmas, and as the most important site of LGBT activism, visibility and community building. And significantly, and I think very relevant for our discussion today, there were tensions and controversies from the start. So, for example, white gay men played a prominent role in organizing the first Pride parades, much more prominent than lesbians or people of color or transgendered people. And there were debates about the balance between celebration and protesting for political or legal demands and about the role of business and other institutions of Pride from the beginning. And it is fascinating because this comes up a lot about, you know, kind of uh, what is what is the ideal balance, you know, celebration versus protest, for example, and then also the corporate relationship as well. And and of course, you know, when, when we when we talk about the corporate relationship, it makes perfect sense to bring in Jack at this point, because I know HSBC, as indeed have many, many financial institutions around the world as well, have been very actively involved with Pride as well. Tell us about HSBC, you know, when, when does it date back to and what was the initial intention when it came to supporting Pride? So, you know, a really good way to contextualize this is kind of my experience as an employee of HSBC and how I learned about Pride in the first place. I was fortunate because I was able to join 
the bank when I was 19, straight out of college. After doing science, that served me very well. And I was in a local branch in the UK, in my local hometown, and I'd been pretty privileged that I'd been able to be out pretty early on in my career. I came out as a gay man, and if anything, it helped me reinforce my identity and position myself you know, in people's minds within the organization. There was a group called Globe, which was gay and lesbians at HSBC, but I was not a member of it, and I didn't know much about it. It was not required resource for me at that time. In 2011, I got the opportunity to move to Hong Kong and immediately became obvious that that safe environment and that ability to be out at work was simply not available for the vast, vast majority of the LGBT community in Hong Kong and Asia Pacific. And so I was able to set up Pride with some other colleagues in 2011 to kind of start to fix that and to bring more consistency across the experience of the LGBT employee were it in the UK and any other part of HSBC's operations. Which makes a lot of sense. And thinking about how the, the that sort of relationship has changed with corporates, and it's fascinating you talk about you know, sort of the regional aspects of, of going out to Hong Kong as well. I'm very keen to kind of think about this in the context of the corporatization of pride as well. And Daniel, you know, I mentioned in the opening references about you know, the research that you've done you know, throughout your career as well. I mean, is there some academic research about the corporate involvement in pride? And, um, and are there perhaps criticisms that are being levied at corporates about their involvement that we should be very mindful of? It's an interesting question. And what struck me is that published academic research on the corporatization of pride is still quite limited. But most scholarship on pride more generally identifies business alongside other institutional involvement, such as by the police or the military, as key sites of tension at pride parades across the world. And a recent book on pride parades in the US by Catherine McFarlane Bruce found that tensions about corporate involvement were evident from the early 1970s, with debates taking place in US gay magazines between activists, some of whom wanted business involvement, and others didn't because they viewed business as being part of sort of homophobic American society, or they came from an anti-capitalist perspective. But in her research, so she interviewed people in small pride parades across America, and McFarland Bruce found that although pride participants she surveyed were aware of tensions and sometimes ambivalent about corporate sponsorship of pride, on balance, she found that they accepted it as part and parcel of putting on a pride parade, and they would rather pride happened, and, and then they recognized that it made it a sort of bigger event. Similarly, another US academic, Lauren Joseph, has argued that business sponsorship of Pride has usually come at the behest of LGBT employees themselves, and that participation by employees in Pride can be very meaningful to them, as well as obviously demonstrating business support. That being said, research that's been done on LGBT employees of large corporations, including some of the research I've done, has found that whereas employees can be very committed to supporting Pride, they can also sometimes be aware and frustrated at where the line between sponsorship and advocacy is drawn, when business is willing to speak out on legal or political issues and when they're not. And of course, businesses can adopt very different public statements depending on which territory they're operating in. And this can sometimes come as a surprise and a disappointment to LGBT employees when they're sort of posted to a different territory. And academics have expressed concern at what the commercialization of Pride has done to its representativeness. 
the kinds of messages and politics it displays and the potential to obscure marginalized and disadvantaged members of the LGBT community. And that there's a sort of a, a more general sort of critique of the LGBT community being viewed as just a new and lucrative market for businesses. Sometimes those same businesses not being willing to stand up for the LGBT community in legal and political terms where it's been perceived as needed. And so for example, some research in the US has found that US corporations can be heavily involved in pride, but have also made campaign donations to homophobic US politicians. <laughs> There's been sort of charges of you know, contradictions there. And just some, some specific examples, a book from about 2008 by Lisa Ward, writing about Los Angeles Pride, documents how as LA Pride became bigger, more prominent, the original organizers of LA Pride, who were Latinx and working class LGBT people, were marginalized and were marginalized by much more sort of business-focused, white, upper-class LGBT organizers, and Pride became a much more corporatized space that marginalized the original organizers were from working class and, and people of color communities. Similarly, the writer and activist Sarah Shulman has written how she's concerned with how LGBT activism and advocacy has become what in her terms is gentrified and increasingly populated by white, economically and educationally privileged people who tend to only think and act on behalf of themselves and people who are like them. So by implication, She's critical of business involvement in Pride for changing the character of Pride and de-radicalizing it from her perspective. And of course, in civil society more broadly, there have sometimes been sharp and very open critiques of the corporatization of Pride. I think sometimes having ticketed events, a move towards a sort of music festival model by some Prides, having very formalized parades with strict running orders, events based on the sponsorship of alcohol companies or armaments manufacturers have all raised concerns about the aims of Pride and who it might include or exclude. And for example, the Reclaim Pride movement argues businesses should play no part in Pride. They also argue the police should play no part. And there was a queer liberation march in New York in 2019 that attracted over 45,000 people. There have been similar protests against the corporatization of Pride by queer activists and anti-capitalist activists um, the cities including London, Toronto, and Johannesburg. So it's a sort of key issue that's debated, I think, in broader civil society and increasingly in academia as well. That's enormously helpful. I don't think I could think of anybody who could set out the entire spectrum of, of conversation and concern and celebration so succinctly, <laughs> just a matter of minutes. And you've covered everything there in terms of the considerations around cost of putting on enormous events then also the importance of wholesale, widespread inclusion and everything that sits in between thinking about corporate agendas and policies, etc. as well. And Jack, I didn't expect for a second of you to be the voice of the corporate world entirely. However, you know, I'd love to hear your, your point of view, actually, from a corporate perspective about, you know, there is a value and importance in having the corporates involved as well. And, you know, how also taking it a little bit further on into how corporate sponsorship has created acceptance and inclusion of the LGBT employees within the world of financial services. I'd love your thoughts on that. Well, I think Dr. Conway brings up some really, really valid and, and quite important points, both on the positive side of corporate advocacy, as well as some of the pitfalls and traps that I think that you know we can all find ourselves in. 
So he raised the point that quite often internal advocacy and corporate advocacy for LGBT inclusion is almost always driven by LGBT employees within those organizations who want and identify the power that a brand and an organization can have to help advocate and to help progress the conversation and shine a spotlight on LGBT people in the communities. But I also think that he's quite right in saying that Previously, and I would still say today, the majority and there is an overexposure of, you know, white gay men driving a lot of these things within organizations. You know, I myself as a white gay man has noticed that. I was able to use that as an opportunity when I first moved to Hong Kong, but certainly it's been in my mind right from the beginning that it's not for me to own fully. And that actually, yes, I can use my role and privilege to open up the conversation and to start getting that moving. But I have to put a lot of concerted effort to make sure that those who have previously been underexposed get to follow in my footsteps and are proactively encouraged to take more visible roles of advocacy and, of course, more visible opportunities in the organizations as well. I think Dr. Conway also brings up the very important point about making sure that things are done with the right intentions, but also that are followed up with the right actions. Corporate advocacy and sponsorship of LGBT inclusion must be done from a base of credibility. It is disingenuous for organizations to join the race as it's seen right now, for LGBT advocacy from a brand perspective, without getting their own house in order and without making sure that the experience of their employees and customers are addressed so that they can go into the public sphere with credibility. And I think that's the most important thing. We've seen brands that have entered into the public space with advocacy that have failed because they've been very clearly and rightfully called out for not living up to the values that they're supposedly supporting. And I think that was a fascinating point that was made earlier about, you know, whilst actively lobbying certain recognised homophobic dignitaries in the world of politics, for example, you know, this has to be, uh, and, and everybody talks about the importance of inclusion and everybody talks about the importance of authenticity and culture. And of course, this has to be embedded right the way down the organisation. So it feels very important, authentic and owned. But also, I, I also, if I may just pick up on your other comments about visibility, which is by encouraging others from right the way across the spectrum of intersectionality to come forward and take more prominent positions in a way that they feel comfortable, because actually it, it sends a massive message to have role models out visible and also to be championing corporate change, positive culture, and also supporting each other as well. I think it's incredibly important as well. Wonderful. Thank you both so much for your, your thoughts on that. And I do want to just sort of remain on this, this topic of intersectionality. And, you know, it is incredibly important, as we've just discussed as well. And then I think about particularly Black Pride in the UK. And I think also about the importance of including other groups such as you know, LGBT employees with disabilities, thinking particularly about the trans community as well. And I wonder, Jack, if we could stay with you on this one, is there an even level of representation of the L, the G, the B and the T within Pride? And you know, what changes should we bring in to make this more inclusive and, and even better? Well, I think 
the answer clearly is no. I think that we've noticed that there's been a, you know, a lack of visibility and support for the bisexual and the trans community. The trans quite often get the, the brunt of a lot of the abuse that the LGBT community faces. And the bi community clearly is often really not talked about or even, you know, people address it quite flippantly in the fact that, well, they can just hide it, you know, which is clearly the wrong approach to go. The role of corporates and making sure that that conversation is held equally is to identify that, to put the hands up and have that mea culpa moment and say, okay, we, we've got to the point where we are. We have successful pride chapters. We've got networks and we've been able to, you know, have this fundamental conversation around sexual orientation and gender identity. However, where are the areas that we really need to put additional focus on? The reason being those who would normally take up the role to speak about their own experience are still very much oppressed and underrepresented and don't have the confidence and security that the G and the L population of LGBT quite often have because of decades of exposure. And so we have got a long way to go in a very short amount of time to really lift up the B, T and everybody else of the sexual orientation and gender identity minority or everybody we're grouping into that plus at the end of LGBT now to really fill in the gaps and to colour out the rest of the community and to make sure that they are seen as much a part of the LGBT community as the usual suspects have been over the past several decades. And Daniel, let me bring you in here just, just kind of to remind us about really why this matters. So our listeners might be sitting there saying, yes, absolutely in principle, completely agree with everything Jack's just said. You know, talk to us about why this really matters, particularly within the world of Pride. I think intersectionality is really important as for the reasons Jack outlines. And it's a key criticism made by, for example, the Reclaim Pride movement that Pride too often presents a world of privilege, of success, of a, a white world, and of a world where homophobia is over, that the, the focus on celebration has sort of edged out raising important issues around homophobia in certain groups. And thinking about Black Pride, for example, UK Black Pride was organised because it was felt London Pride was too white, and the organisers weren't listening to Black and ethnic minority activists. And Trans Pride, for example, which takes place in the UK and Brighton each year, was organised for similar reasons. And I think there's an interesting debate when we focus on corporate involvement in Pride around intersectionality. For example, in my research, I came across Pride organisers who were worried about the kinds of bodies that were put on display on floats. Would they appeal to sponsors? Would they look the right kind of way? And I think exactly those kinds of perceptions and decisions are things that then lead to intersectionality not being thought about. And people aren't perceived to have the right look, the right race, or something that's perceived to be appealing, being edged out. Similarly, I think it's important to think about LGBTQ plus people who are economically marginalized, such as the homeless, certain migrant groups, and they have been criticized that they have also been marginalized in mainstream pride parades for not quite fitting the right message. So I think pride obviously has to keep a focus on celebration, on its roots in humor, and on its roots of street theater, but it also has to incorporate intersectionality and racial, gendered, and also economic terms as well. 
Well, it's interesting your, your note was on the economic terms because, you know, Jack, we were talking earlier about, you know, your look at the world through the customer lens and the customer relationship. And these are all potential customers of financial services firms in some way, shape or form. And I, I know you were keen to come in here. So, so please, love to hear your thoughts. So I think Dr. Conway's point and some of the criticisms that he's raised up that are addressed to corporate advocacy of pride are entirely justified. And I think is something that we all need to take onto account as we have a look at the way that we use our brands and indeed the way that we use our sponsorships. There are valid criticisms of the way that organizations have sponsored these and some of the way that large scale corporate sponsorship of pride events have changed it. And I think that as organizations have a look at the way that they are using their brand to represent and indeed looking to evolve their position of advocacy of LGBT and understand the nuances and all the different areas of the community that have not had the representation, realize the value in understanding those different perspectives. The reason that organizations advocate for diversity and inclusion fundamentally is for diverse perspectives and more robust decision making and to reach more communities and customers and we've done that reasonably well with the l and the b community l and the g community but we have much further to go to understanding the benefits that even more marginalized groups can bring to all those conversations Daniel, you were talking earlier about thinking about asylum seeker refugee communities. And it sort of makes me sort of think very much about the conversation we were having, sort of, I think, at the beginning of the show about the international point of view as well. And you both, you know, clearly from very different perspectives, have international sort of experiences and perspectives too. So I'd, I'd really like to sort of move the conversation on just a, just a notch, if we would, to think about this from a, from a worldwide perspective. It's a big brief in, in a relatively short period of time. But you know, when we think about the Pride events around the world and different approaches, different extents, different appreciation of the value and indeed different attitudes to how welcome these events may or may not be as well. Jack, I'd love to think about Pride in different parts of the world. So, for example, I think at Reykjavik in, in Iceland, where sponsors were prevented from displaying logos at a march. They're featured instead on the website and in ads in magazines. There are different sort of approaches to branding, if you like. And the reason given is to keep the focus on the cause, what has been achieved and what is yet to be won. And and just love to get your thoughts on, you know, out of the challenges, the risk of not becoming too mainstream versus, you know, obviously the, the corporate perspective and point of view, as we were discussing earlier. Love to hear your thoughts about, you know, regional and, and global perspectives. Well, I think, as we all know, there are in, incredible diverse experiences towards the LGBT population around the world. And the legislative and cultural challenges that exist are very real, very real. For organizations to truly understand how they can make a difference and what their comfort levels are, they really must understand what the legal red lines are. You know, for a long time, when we were working with markets, say for in India, China, and so on and so forth, the assumption was that you couldn't talk about LGBT. It wasn't allowed, uh, it was forbidden, and in some cases, a lot of people said it's illegal to talk about it. When actually, in reality, if you have a look at the legal details it, you know 377 is not a law about discussing or promoting sexual orientation and gender identity it's a lot more basic than that which means that organizations shouldn't fear the law so much in many countries but what they do need to do as i say is understand those red lines 
take steer from their global positioning and the very strong support that should be coming from the top and have confidence that there is opportunities to make an impact in a lot of these markets that are underrepresented. I will also caveat that there are limitations as well. Organizations and businesses are outcome driven. They are not always, you know, the moral light holder. They are ultimately capitalist organizations and have a fine line to tread between what is in the possible of advocacy and some of the real obstacles that are present in some of these markets. Very balanced view. And, and certainly, lot, I mean, I'm pausing for thought with, with every word that you say about, you know, how do you navigate that, that balance as an organization as well? I mean, I think particularly, I mean, I, I take one country, but this is just one simple example of, you know, a country like Uganda, where there is opposition to actually hosting Pride and hosting Pride see very much as a political motivated uh, statement as well. Um, Daniel, I'd love to get your thoughts on this in terms of as you look out into the world, you know, that again, this balance between commercial sponsorship and, and the role of financial institutions and what they can do to pick up Jack's comment about advocacy. What can they be doing to really drive change in those countries? It's a really important point, and it's a good question. And I think there's a very complex sort of answer to all of that. And it very much is based on how Pride is organized, whether Pride is used as a useful vehicle. So, for example, you mentioned Uganda Pride, and Belga Africa doesn't consider Pride as the most useful activist platform across Africa because just holding a Pride at all is so challenging. So, actually, corporate involvement is viewed as a potential opportunity in that context. And if I think elsewhere, um, so I went to Shanghai Pride, for example, where there was no parade because holding a march is unlawful in mainland China. And in Shanghai, businesses very much were used as a cover for the different events over Shanghai Pride. The events were held very much behind closed doors, often either at an international hotel chain or when I was there, GE held a, a large event for Shanghai Pride at their corporate campus in Shanghai. Also, the diplomatic community held events and film screenings, etc. But it was felt by the organizers of Shanghai Pride that the language of corporate diversity and inclusion and the language of the business case of LGBT inclusion was one that would be, be more likely to be listened to by the Chinese authority than an expressly human rights language. And that this was more, this was less confrontational for the authorities. So it was viewed that corporate involvement was A, providing a cover and an opportunity for events to take place, and B, maybe a message that would be listened to. Now, thinking about Shanghai Pride, there were criticisms of it for the same reasons that we've talked about, that it privileged middle-class and professional and expatriate people over maybe some local communities. And the second thing to think about is that even with that cautious and I think quite considered approach, over time, harassment of the organizers of Shanghai Pride has increased to the extent to which it's not likely to happen again in the foreseeable future that organizers decide to call a halt. Now, I am aware that international businesses in that context are continuing to do work around diversity and inclusion. But it strikes me as interesting that that encompasses both the opportunities and the, and the drawbacks and some of the difficult decisions that have to be made. So I think 
businesses can certainly raise awareness and visibility when they're involved in Pride internationally, but they can also be quite cautious about calling for legal and political change. And it's, I, I sort of recognize that it's a very difficult judgment call, but I also think that businesses will very often lobby around political issues relating to tax, migration, even if we think in the UK Brexit, so very sensitive political issues. And I wonder that sometimes they can be too cautious around LGBT issues internationally. And I think that's something to think of, particularly for financial institutions, considering their, their considerable power across the world. It's a very thoughtful moment, actually, to bring in Cynthia at this point, who I know has plenty of research to support today's discussion. In 2012, a group of individuals formed London LGBT plus Community Pride, a registered community interest company, and the company organised the Pride in London Festival and Parade in 2013. The organisation was awarded a contract to organise Pride in London by the Greater London Authority, together with funding of £500,000 over five years. Fast forward to 2019, where the headline sponsors for Pride in London 2019 included financial services such as Barclays Bank, Citibank and Prudential. So let's take a few moments to remind everybody how to find Diversity Podcasts and that links to the research can be found on our website, diversecitypodcast.com. That's diversity with a C, diversecitypodcast.com, where you can find all our episodes and do sign up for early notifications of future recordings. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Diversity Podcast is available on Bright's Talk and all good podcast channels. And of course, now you can find our content on City AM. By the way, we would love a rating because it all does help to promote the show. So I'm just really sort of fascinated by this, this whole conversation about branding. You know, I am a business development marketing comms professional in the city. The clients all over the world think about the importance of the brand, but I have noticed that some companies have arguably de-gazed their, their branding, their floats, for example, at Pride, not mentioning necessarily LGBT+, plus, but just branding it as Pride. Um, and I wonder where this, in this conversation of the corporatization of Pride, and there was a lot of discussion last year about the LGBT M&S sandwich, and whether that has just perhaps gone a step too far. Daniel, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the importance of the branding and also the association. Thinking through things like the rainbow MS sandwich is a really interesting point, and it's an important one, and it's a difficult tension to resolve. And I mentioned before that Gilbert Baker had designed the original LGBT flag, and he was very clear that he was happy for it to be used by anyone and everyone, and we know he endorsed businesses to use it because he wanted to raise LGBT visibility. So from this perspective, having brands and projects change to rainbow colors during Pride Month and so on really does raise visibility. However, I also agree with critics of this, that saying using the rainbow on everything and on products everywhere can really reduce its meaning and sort of erase not just the sort of thinking about the history of Pride and on what issues it was based on, but also marginalizing ongoing challenges around homophobia, because so it can make people think we're just celebrating equality and there's no more challenges and homophobia doesn't exist. So I think that's a problem as well. And I think businesses should be sensitive about the audience they're speaking to, 
who's speaking, on behalf of whom. And they shouldn't always assume that they're external to the problems they're talking about. Because like anybody, institutions like businesses, they can also be complicit in those problems and they can reproduce problems in certain ways. And also struck as well by corporate floats at Pride. Often I'm struck that there can be the professional employees of those corporations on the floats, but possibly not the cleaners or the security guards who also work at those corporations, who may be predominantly black and ethnic minority or immigrants on precarious work visas. So I think corporations really have to think about when we're at a Pride event, what issues are we raising and who are we actually including and maybe excluding? And of course, there are other issues as well, thinking not all employees are comfortable about being out, or maybe they can't be out for whatever reason, or maybe they don't want to participate in Pride as an employee, they want to be there as an individual. There's all sorts of complex issues which I think raise lots of interesting questions. So I think this is a complex issue, and just as it's important for me to be, as an individual, to be aware of sort of my privilege and how that might affect how I talk and who I think about, it's also important for businesses to be mindful of their power and their complex role in society as well. And a couple of other things which we haven't talked about in the episode today, which, which has just also come out of that, which is the importance of allyship, but allyship at all levels as well. Lot, certainly lots to think about there. Really, really appreciate all your thoughts on that because it is, it is a, a delicate balance to tread. It is clearly, you know, uh, a point of view which has many perspectives as well and it's great, great again great to hear your thoughts from from a very rounded perspective so thank you for that and and jack definitely sort of turn to you at this point about your your, your thoughts around you know the corporate branding positioning and a relationship as well well i think we've got to make sure that we remember what we're advocating for and why you know one of the key things that i say to a lot of leaders when they're talking about lgbt inclusion is say the words say lesbian gay bisexual transgender in your speeches and in your team talks because you have to normalize and make people comfortable with using specific words to really hammer it home that we're talking about sexual orientation and gender identity minorities so say the words don't hide behind acronyms Look, the roles that businesses have to play is complex. They are sometimes overpowered. And I think that a lot of people can get justly concerned with the corporate takeover of pride. But what I would like to make sure that everybody understands and takes perspective on is that it is one tool of advocacy that we as an LGBT community have in our portfolio to advocate for rights. We have our grassroots communities that we need to support. We have our activists, our really forceful activists like those from the Stonewall riots so many years ago who took on a physical role in advocating for LGBT inclusion. And we also have corporate advocacy. It is simply another route, another voice in the same goal. It's been a wonderful discussion. It's been a fantastic, I can't tell you, I'm sitting here listening to the two of you talk and I have so many questions I would love to put to you. Sadly, we just we just do, don't have time, but this will not be the end of the discussion, I'm sure. And I think that all our listeners from around the world working in financial services organizations who are you know, very supportive and also being very thoughtful about the route that they should take. Well, I really hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have. There is always one burning question though that's in my mind as we wrap up the show, which is I've asked everybody, every guest this question, and I'm quite deeply concerned as we head into tough economic times, which is, is there a risk that diversity and inclusion will fall down the corporate 
agenda. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about why it's so important that we keep this as high as possible. Uh, Jack, let me come to you first of all. Love to hear your thoughts. I think there is a risk, but I am optimistic. The presence and the investment behind diversity and inclusion in the corporate world and the understanding that roles corporates have in this space is only increasing. And I think we've seen an incredible um, change in pace of delivery and engagement when it comes to the importance of diversity and inclusion within the workplace, not only internally, but also how organizations use that mindset and methodology to change their propositions and what they actually do for the better as well. Um, but I think with any change comes opportunity. I'm, I'm a real big um, believer in that. And I think that the biggest shock from 2020 was obviously not only the, the way that the pandemic has impacted the role of the organization to support its colleagues, but also what happened in George Floyd's case over in the US has shaken a lot of leadership in organizations to understand that actually they have a responsibility beyond just lip service to actually make commitments and to invest in the well-being of their colleagues and their customers. And so I am optimistic, but as with any change, there are pitfalls and we need to be very, very careful. An optimistic note to see us out for sure. Thank you so much, Jack, for that. And uh, Daniel, same question to you, really. Why must diversity and inclusion remain high on the corporate agenda? I think it's really important to remember that we're far from living in an equal world, including in the UK. And even if we feel empowered and valued, either as an LGBT person or employee, there are plenty of other people out there who don't and aren't. And I think it's important to remember that prejudice is complex and intersectional. And we can be subject to it in the workplace and in society and subtle and sometimes by surprise in very obvious ways. So it's very much an ongoing journey. And we're certainly not the, at the end of sort of LGBT equality by any means. And like we talked about earlier, I think it's really important to think of these issues in intersectional terms and to be mindful of our privilege and to consider people and communities we may overlook. So, and it is very important that we continue this discussion, that we really think about it very thoughtfully. I can't tell you how much I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you both today, knowing how busy you individually are and to, to be able to take the time to come together. Um, so, uh, yeah, Jack, thank you so much for all your thoughts. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being on the show today. Enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. Pleasure. And uh, Dr. Daniel Conway, thank you again for all your thoughts and all your perspectives and very rounded point of view from an academic perspective. Thanks very much. Thank you. And as always, to all our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. I've been Julia Streets. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion and we look forward to future episodes. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsania for her insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. It really helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.